Section 19 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Milton, Poet and Patriot, Part 3. Traces, indeed, of the peculiar character of Milton may be found in all his works, but it is most strongly displayed in the sonnets. Those remarkable poems have been undervalued by critics who have not understood their nature. They have no epigrammatic point. There is none of the ingenuity of Filikaha in the thought, none of the hard and brilliant enamel of Petrarch in the style. They are simple but majestic records of the feelings of the poet, as little tricked out for the public eye as his diary would have been. A victory, an expected attack upon the city, a momentary fit of depression or exultation, a jest thrown out against one of his books, a dream for which a short time restored him to that beautiful face over which the grave had closed forever, led him to musings, which, without effort, shaped themselves into verse. The unity of sentiment and severity of style which characterize these little pieces remind us of the Greek anthology, or perhaps still more of the collects of English liturgy. The noble poem on the massacres of Piedmont is strictly a collect in verse. The sonnets are more or less striking according as the occasions which gave birth to them are more or less interesting. But they are, almost without exception, dignified by a sobriety and greatness of mind to which we know not where to look for a parallel. It would indeed be scarcely safe to draw any decided inference as to the character of a writer from passages directly egotistical. But the qualities which we have ascribed to Milton though perhaps most strongly marked in those parts of his work which treat of his personal feelings, are distinguishable in every page, and in part to all his writings, prose and poetry, English, Latin, and Italian, a strong family likeness. His public conduct was such as was to be expected from a man of spirit so high and of an intellect so powerful. He lived at one of the most memorable eras in the history of mankind, at the very crisis of the great conflict, between Oromacides and Aramanes, liberty and despotism, reason and prejudice. That great battle was fought for no single generation, for no single land. The destinies of the human race were staked on the same cast with the freedom of the English people. Then were first proclaimed those mighty principles which have since worked their way into the depths of the American forests, which have aroused Greece from the slavery and degradation of two thousand years, and which, from one end of Europe to the other, have kindled an unquenchable fire in the hearts of the oppressed, and loosed the knees of the oppressors with an unwanted fear. Of those principles, then struggling for their infant existence, Milton was the most devoted and eloquent literary champion. We need not say how much we admire his public conduct, but we cannot disguise from ourselves that a large portion of his countrymen still think it unjustifiable. The Civil War, indeed, has been more discussed and is less understood than any event in English history. The Friends of Liberty labored under the disadvantage of which the lion in the fable complained so bitterly. Though they were the conquerors, their enemies were the painters. As a body, the Roundheads had done their utmost to decry and ruin literature, and literature was even with them, as in the long run it always is with its enemies. The best book on their side of the question is the charming narrative of Mrs. Hutchinson. May's history of the Parliament is good, but it breaks off at the most interesting crisis of the struggle. The performance of Ludlow is foolish and violent, and most of the later writers who have espoused the same cause, Old Mixon, for instance, and Catherine Macaulay, have, to say the least, 
been more distinguished by zeal than either by candor or by skill. On the other side are the most authoritative and the most popular historical works in our language, that of Clarendon and that of Hume. The former is not only ably written and full of valuable information, but has also an air of dignity and sincerity which makes even the prejudices and errors with which it abounds respectable. Hume, from whose fascinating narrative the great mass of the reading public are still contented to take their opinions, hated religion so much that he hated liberty for having been allied with religion, and has pleaded the cause of tyranny with the dexterity of an advocate while affecting the impartiality of a judge. The public conduct of Milton must be approved or condemned according as the resistance of the people to Charles I shall appear to be justifiable or criminal. Every man who approves of the revolution of 1688, which dethroned James II, son of Charles I, on the grounds that he had broken the fundamental laws of the kingdom and enthroned William of Orange in his stead, must hold that the breach of fundamental laws on the part of the sovereign justifies resistance. The question then is this, had Charles I broken the fundamental laws of England? No person can answer in the negative unless he refuses credit, not merely to all the accusations brought against Charles by his opponents, but to the narratives of the warmest royalists, and to the confessions of the king himself. If there be any truth in any historian of any party who has related the events of that reign, the conduct of Charles, from his accession to the meeting of the Long Parliament, had been a continued course of oppression and treachery. Let those who applaud the revolution and condemn the rebellion mention one act of James II to which a parallel is not to be found in the history of his father. Let them lay their fingers on a single article in the Declaration of Right, presented by the two houses to William and Mary, which Charles is not acknowledged to have violated. He had, according to the testimony of his own friends, usurped the functions of the legislature, raised taxes without the consent of Parliament, and quartered troops on the people in the most illegal and vexatious manner. Not a single session of Parliament had passed without some unconstitutional attack on the freedom of debate, the right of petition was grossly violated, arbitrary judgments, exorbitant fines, and unwarranted imprisonments were grievances of daily occurrence. If these things do not justify resistance, the revolution was treason. If they do, the great rebellion was laudable. But, it is said, why not adopt milder measures? Why, after the king had consented to so many reforms and renounced so many oppressive prerogatives, did the Parliament continue to rise in their demands at the risk of provoking a civil war? The ship money had been given up. The Star Chamber had been abolished. Provision had been made for the frequent convocation and secure deliberation of Parliaments. Why not pursue an end confessedly good by peaceable and regular means? We recur again to the analogy of the Revolution. Why was James driven from the throne? Why was he not retained upon conditions? He too had offered to call a free Parliament, and to submit to its decision all the matters in dispute. Yet we are in the habit of praising our forefathers, who preferred a revolution, a disputed succession, a dynasty of strangers, twenty years of foreign and intestine war, a standing army, and a national debt, to the rule, however restricted, of a tried and proved tyrant. The long Parliament acted on the same principle and is entitled to the same praise. They could not trust the king. He had no doubt passed salutary laws, but what assurance was there that he would not break them? He had renounced oppressive prerogatives, but where was the security that he would not resume them? The nation had to deal with a man whom no tie could bind, a man who made and broke promises with equal facility, a man whose honor had been a hundred times pawned and never redeemed. 
Here, indeed, the long Parliament stands on still stronger ground than the Convention of 1688. No action of James can be compared to the conduct of Charles with respect to the petition of right. The Lords and Commons present him with a bill in which the constitutional limits of his power are marked out. He hesitates, he evades, at last he bargains to give his assent for five subsidies. The bill receives his solemn assent, the subsidies are voted, but no sooner is the tyrant relieved than he returns at once to all the arbitrary measures which he had bound himself to abandon, and violates all the clauses of the very act which he had been paid to pass. For more than ten years the people had seen the rights which were theirs by a double claim, by immemorial inheritance and by recent purchase, infringed by the perfidious king who had recognized them. At length circumstances compelled Charles to summon another parliament. Another chance was given to our fathers. Were they to throw it away as they had thrown away the former? Were they again to be cozened by le roi le vote? Were they again to advance their money on pledges which had been forfeited over and over again? Were they to lay a second petition of right at the foot of the throne, to grant another lavish aid in exchange for another unmeaning ceremony, and then to take their departure, till after ten years more of fraud and oppression their prince should again require a supply, and again repay it with a perjury? They were compelled to choose whether they would trust a tyrant or conquer him. We think that they chose wisely and nobly. The advocates of Charles, like the advocates of other malefactors against whom overwhelming evidence is produced, generally decline all controversy about the facts, and content themselves with calling testimony to character. He had so many private virtues. And had James the Second no private virtues? Was Oliver Cromwell, his bitterest enemies themselves being judges, destitute of private virtues? And what, after all, are the virtues ascribed to Charles? A religious zeal, not more sincere than that of his son, and fully as weak and narrow-minded, and a few of the ordinary household decencies which half the tombstones in England claim for those who lie beneath them. A good father, a good husband. Ample apologies, indeed, for fifteen years of persecution, tyranny, and falsehood. We charge him with having broken his coronation oath, and we are told that he kept his marriage vow. We accuse him of having given up his people to the merciless inflictions of the most hot-headed and hard-hearted of prelates, and the defense is that he took his little son on his knee and kissed him. We censure him for having violated the articles of the petition of right, after having, for good and valuable consideration, promised to observe them, and we are informed that he was accustomed to hear prayers at six o'clock in the morning. It is to such considerations as these, together with Van Dyck's dress, his handsome face, and his peaked beard, that he owes, we verily believe, most of his popularity with the present generation. For ourselves, we own that we do not understand the common phrase, a good man, but a bad king. We can as easily conceive a good man and an unnatural father, or a good man and a treacherous friend. We cannot, in estimating the character of an individual, leave out of our consideration his conduct in the most important of all human relations. And if in that relation we find him to have been selfish, cruel, and deceitful, we shall take the liberty to call him a bad man, in spite of all his temperance at table and all his regularity at chapel. We cannot refrain from adding a few words respecting a topic on which the defenders of Charles are fond of dwelling. If, they say, he governed his people ill, he at least governed them after the example of his predecessors. If he violated their privileges, it was because their privileges had not been accurately defined. No act of oppression has ever been imputed to him which has not a parallel in the annals of the Tudors. This point Hume has labored with an art which is as discreditable in a historical work as it would be admirable in a forensic address. 
The answer is short, clear, and decisive. Charles had assented to the petition of right. He had renounced the oppressive powers said to have been exercised by his predecessors, and he had renounced them for money. He was not entitled to set up his antiquated claims against his own recent release. These arguments are so obvious that it may seem superfluous to dwell upon them. But those who have observed how much the events of that time are misrepresented and misunderstood will not blame us for stating the case simply. It is a case of which the simplest statement is the strongest. The enemies of the Parliament, indeed, rarely choose to take issue on the great points of the question. They content themselves with exposing some of the crimes and follies to which public commotions necessarily give birth. They bewail the unmerited fate of Strafford. They execrate the lawless violence of the army. They laugh at the scriptural names of the preachers. Major generals fleecing their districts, soldiers reveling on the spoils of ruined peasantry, upstarts enriched by the public plunder, taking possession of the hospitable firesides and hereditary trees of the old gentry. Boys smashing the beautiful windows of cathedrals, Quakers riding naked through the marketplace, fifth monarchy men shouting for King Jesus, agitators lecturing from the tops of tubs on the fate of Agag. All these, they tell us, were the offspring of the Great Rebellion. Be it so. We are not careful to answer in this matter. These charges, were they infinitely more important, would not alter our opinion of an event which alone has made us differ from the slaves who crouch beneath despotic scepters. Many evils, no doubt, were produced by the Civil War. They were the price of our liberty. Has the acquisition been worth the sacrifice? It is the nature of the devil of tyranny to tear and rend the body which he leaves. Are the miseries of continued possession less horrible than the struggles of the tremendous exorcism? If it were possible that a people brought up under an intolerant and arbitrary system could subvert that system without acts of cruelty and folly, half the objections to despotic power would be removed. We should, in that case, be compelled to acknowledge that it at least produces no pernicious effects on the intellectual and moral character of a nation. We deplore the outrages which accompany revolutions, but the more violent the outrages, the more assured we feel that a revolution was necessary. The violence of these outrages will always be proportioned to the ferocity and ignorance of the people, and the ferocity and ignorance of the people will be proportioned to the impression and degradation under which they have been accustomed to live. Thus it was in our civil war. The heads of the church and state reaped only that which they had sown. The government had prohibited free discussion. It had done its best to keep the people unacquainted with their duties and their rights. The retribution was just and natural. If our rulers suffered from popular ignorance, it was because they themselves had taken away the key of knowledge. If they were assailed with blind fury, it was because they had exacted an equally blind submission. It is the character of such revolutions that we always see the worst of them first. Till men have been some time free, they know not how to use their freedom. The natives of wine countries are generally sober. In climates where wine is a rarity, intemperance abounds. A newly liberated people may be compared to a northern army encamped on the Rhine or the Zuries. It is said that when soldiers in such a situation find themselves able to indulge without restraint in such a rare and expensive luxury, nothing is to be seen but intoxication. Soon, however, plenty teaches discretion, and after wine has been for a few months their daily fare, they become more temperate than they had ever been in their own country. In the same manner, the final and permanent fruits of liberty are wisdom, moderation, and mercy. Its immediate effects are often atrocious crimes, conflicting errors, skepticism on points the most clear, dogmatism on points the most mysterious. It is just at this crisis that its enemies love to exhibit it. 
they pull down the scaffolding from the half-finished edifice they point to the flying dust the falling bricks the comfortless rooms the frightful irregularity of the whole appearance and then ask in scorn where the promised splendor and comfort is to be found if such miserable sophisms were to prevail there would never be a good house or a good government in the world ariosto tells a pretty story of a fairy who by some mysterious law of her nature was condemned to appear at certain seasons in the form of a foul and poisonous snake those who injured her during the period of her disguise were forever excluded from participation in the blessings which she bestowed but to those who in spite of her loathsome aspect pitied and protected her she afterwards revealed herself in the beautiful and celestial form which was natural to her accompanied their steps granted all their wishes filled their houses with wealth made them happy in love and victorious in war such a spirit is liberty at times she takes the form of a hateful reptile she grovels she hisses she stings but woe to those who in disgust shall venture to crush her and happy are those who having dared to receive her in her degraded and frightful shape shall at length be rewarded by her in the time of her beauty and her glory there is only one cure for the evils which newly acquired freedom produces and that cure is freedom when a prisoner first leaves his cell he cannot bear the light of day he is unable to discriminate colors or recognize faces but the remedy is not to remand him into his dungeon but to accustom him to the rays of the sun the blaze of truth and liberty may at first dazzle and bewilder nations which have become half blind in the house of bondage but let them gaze on and they will soon be able to bear it in a few years men learn to reason the extreme violence of opinions subsides hostile theories correct each other the scattered elements of truth cease to contend and begin to coalesce and at length a system of justice and order is educed out of the chaos many politicians of our time are in the habit of laying it down as a self-evident proposition that no people ought to be free till they are fit to use their freedom the maxim is worthy of the fool in the old story who resolved not to go into the water till he had learned to swim if men are to wait for liberty till they become wise and good in slavery they may indeed wait forever therefore it is that we decidedly approve of the conduct of milton and the other wise and good men who in spite of much that was ridiculous and hateful in the conduct of their associates stood by the cause of public liberty we are not aware that the poet has been charged with personal participation in any of the blamable excesses of that time the favorite topic of his enemies is the line of conduct which he pursued with regard to the execution of the king of that celebrated proceeding we by no means approve still we must say in justice to the many eminent persons who concurred in it and in justice more particularly to the eminent person who defended it that nothing can be more absurd than the imputations which for the last hundred and sixty years it has been the fashion to cast upon the regicides we disapprove we repeat of the execution of charles not because the constitution exempts the king from responsibility for we know that all such maxims however excellent have their exceptions nor because we feel any peculiar interest in his character for we think that his sentence describes him with perfect justice as a tyrant a traitor a murderer and a public enemy but because we are convinced that the measure was most injurious to the cause of freedom he whom it removed was a captive and a hostage his heir to whom the allegiance of every royalist was instantly transferred was at large the presbyterians could never have been perfectly reconciled to the father they had no such rooted enmity to the son the great body of people also contemplated that proceeding with feelings which however unreasonable no government could safely venture to outrage but though we think the conduct of the regicides blamable that of milton appears to us in a very different light the deed was done 
it could not be undone the evil was incurred and the object was to render it as small as possible we censure the chiefs of the army for not yielding to the popular opinion but we cannot censure milton for wishing to change that opinion the very feeling which would have restrained us from committing the act would have led us after it had been committed to defend it against the ravings of servility and superstition for the sake of public liberty we wish that the thing had not been done while the people disapproved of it but for the sake of public liberty we should also have wished the people approve of it when it was done we wish to add a few words relative to another subject on which the enemies of milton delight to dwell his conduct during the administration of the protector that an enthusiastic votary of liberty should accept office under a military usurper seems no doubt at first sight extraordinary but all the circumstances in which the country was then placed were extraordinary the ambition of oliver was of no vulgar kind he never seems to have coveted despotic power he at first fought sincerely and manfully for the parliament and never deserted it till it had deserted its duty if he dissolved it by force it was not till he found that few members who remained after so many deaths successions and expulsions were desirous to appropriate to themselves a power which they held only in trust and to inflict upon england the curse of a venetian oligarchy but even when thus placed by violence at the head of affairs he did not assume unlimited power he gave the country a constitution far more perfect than any which had at that time been known in the world he reformed the representative system in a manner which has extorted praise even from lord clarendon for himself he demanded indeed the first place in the commonwealth but with powers scarcely so great as those of a dutch stadtholder or an american president he gave the parliament a voice in the appointment of ministers and left to it the whole legislative authority not even reserving to himself a veto on its enactments and he did not require that the chief magistracy should be hereditary in his family thus far we think if the circumstances of the time and the opportunities which he had of aggrandizing himself be fairly considered he will not lose by comparison with washington or bolivar had his moderation been met by corresponding moderation there is no reason to think that he would have overstepped the line which he had traced for himself but when he found that his parliaments questioned the authority under which they met and that he was in danger of being deprived of the restricted power which was absolutely necessary to his personal safety then it must be acknowledged he adopted a more arbitrary policy yet though we believe that the intentions of cromwell were at first honest though we believe that he was driven from the noble course which he had marked out for himself by the almost irresistible force of circumstances though we admire in common with all men of all parties the ability and energy of his splendid administration we are not pleading for arbitrary and lawless power even in his hands we know that a good constitution is infinitely better than the best despot but we suspect that at the time of which we speak the violence of religious and political enmities rendered a stable and happy settlement next to impossible the choice lay not between cromwell and liberty but between cromwell and the stuarts that milton chose well no man can doubt who fairly compares the events of the protectorate with those of the thirty years which succeeded it the darkest and most disgraceful in the english annals cromwell was evidently laying though in an irregular manner the foundations of an admirable system never before had religious liberty and the freedom of discussion been enjoyed in a greater degree never had the national honor been better upheld abroad or the seat of justice better filled at home and it was rarely that any opposition which stopped short of open rebellion provoked the resentment of the liberal and magnanimous usurper the institutions which he had established as set down in the instrument of government 
and the humble petition and advice were excellent. His practice, it is true, too often departed from the theory of these institutions, but had he lived a few years longer, it is probable that his institutions would have survived him, and that his arbitrary practice would have died with him. His power had not been consecrated by ancient prejudices. It was upheld only by his great personal qualities. Little, therefore, was to be dreaded from a second protector, unless he were also a second Oliver Cromwell. The events which followed his decease are the most complete vindication of those who exerted themselves to uphold his authority. His death dissolved the whole frame of society. The army rose against the parliament, the different corps of the army against each other. Sect raved against sect, party plotted against party. The Presbyterians, in their eagerness to be revenged on the independents, sacrificed their own liberty and deserted all their old principles. Without casting one glance on the past or requiring one stipulation for the future, they threw down their freedom at the feet of the most frivolous and heartless of tyrants. End of section 19